and uh, welcome back to the Green Majority on CIUT. Welcome back. Yeah, welcome. We started this at the beginning of the show? Yeah, I thought so. It was the beginning of the show. I didn't realize this was the beginning of the show. Fine. Welcome to the Green Majority. Jesus Christ. On uh, CIUT 89.5 FM or on one of our loved radio syndicate partners or on the podcast uh, greenmajority.ca, I am David Hostetter with Stefan Hostetter and Lauren Latour. And Stefan wanted to begin today talking about the Just Recovery Plan. Yes. Well, and, and, the, and the push towards a Just Recovery that, has come, that has, we've talked about previously on the show. It's come out of civil society since, you know, we were all hit with this unfortunate, unpleasant, really just life-altering pandemic that we're currently living through. Um, and... And then the and the response to it being both of of care and then also to to understand it as a moment to sort of you know to really change the fun, some fundamentals of society and we're we're coming up really to sort of the the culmination of of finding out wh- whether or not the sort of push that we've seen is going to win us some policy changes. Uh, you know, before the show, Lauren and I were, were briefly chatting about how there are obviously some community wins and some significant strengthening, I think, of uh, cross-sectoral support of civil society within Canada that can be attributed to some of the work that is coming out of the Just Recovery effort. But the the real question is, will we see the ambition that was asked for matched by the Liberal government? Uh, and we'll find out on September 23rd. So... Uh, with that opening sort of framing, Lauren, what do you think we'll see? Yeah, I, I mean, it's really, really hard to predict right now. We've, we've heard a lot of really good um, rhetoric coming out of the liberals, uh, a lot of talk of building back better and working for a green recovery or a just recovery or, or better yet, a green and just recovery. Um, and, and for instance, one of the reasons that, that we were told Bill Morneau uh, left his position was because of disagreement with Trudeau over the um, sort of direction and and maybe ambition of the recovery plan. Um, but I'm really curious, and I think a lot of people are really curious to see if that sort of initial rhetoric and initial sort of like acquiescence to 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 the demands of civil society actually manifests in any sort of long term transformative plan because as we know um the liberals they're they're a centrist party they favor uh incrementalist sort of policy implementation and that is decidedly not what is being asked for by civil society uh in regards to to covid recovery and and as it sort of feeds into um almost like what i'm going to say is like is a green new deal kind of or a green new deal style um policy or plan um I, I can't necessarily say that I'm super um, optimistic about what we're going to see out of the throne speech, um, but I guess I'm hopeful. And I guess sort of to confirm for listeners who might not be sure, um, the throne speech sort of um, is is where Trudeau will lay out his his general game plan for for the for the recovery period. It's not going to necessarily be um, uh, into the nitty gritty, obviously, of what that policy looks like, but it, but it will lay in sort of broad strokes, maybe some general high level policies that he's going to be working towards implementing. Um, so these next two weeks, uh, we're also seeing our really, really big crunch time in terms of um, a lot of civil society organizations and grassroots groups really, really pushing to try to make it clear exactly what it is is being asked for. Um, so we're seeing from like groups like the Migrant Rights Network, for instance, really, really pushing hard on their status for all campaign to try to to try to make sure that um, immigration reform in, in a positive sense is being implemented. Um, and we're seeing um, increased action from, from groups like, uh, say, Environmental Defense and Greenpeace today. They had a, a big Twitter storm um, action uh, calling for uh, Freeland and, and Trudeau to, to implement some just and green recovery measures. So we're seeing lots of lots of emphasis over these next two weeks um, because we're hoping to see a lot of ambition um, being pledged in, in the throne speech on the 23rd. Yeah. And, and what's interesting about where we stand now is there have definitely been some grumblings 
about the level of ambition that that we might see. I, I've heard things like Trudeau is planning for a relatively significant overhaul of um, of some of our of, of some of Canada's support systems, and you know that's just reports, and we'll see because anyone can spin anything, especially when it's the Liberal Party intentionally leaking things. They can leak whatever story they sort of want to go out. But what was interesting, a little interesting, I think, is the fact that you know Morneau was. Abs- Maybe maybe people could disagree with me on this. It seems relatively obvious to me that Morneau was the was sort of the the person who was sort of pushed out due to the Wee scandal, which had its culmination actually when we were recording this on Wednesday uh, today with with the Kielbergers leaving the Wee charity and we uh, the Wee charity wrapping up its actual operations in Canada altogether. And but the, of course, the liberal story that they sort of put put out in the narrative was that Morneau wanted a more conservative response, and Trudeau wanted a more uh, a more um, a more uh, progressive response. But what's interesting is that we, we sort of reported on this, I'd say, a couple months ago, when there was discussions about the divide in in caucus uh, or the, the, the divide within the within the the liberal the liberal government. The idea was that Morneau and Freeland were sort of on the same side of not really wanting a big response, and then most of the other liberals were on the, on the side of, of wanting a much more progressive response. And so to go from Morneau to Freeland, to me, doesn't indicate that we're really going to see a huge change. You know, there were certainly more progressive people they could have put in place, um, and, and so, and so I, I'm, I'm not—I'm with you. I'm, I'm not optimistic. Mm-hmm. But— and- yeah. Oh, and sorry, I, w- I was going to say, and, and I guess because of that, I guess I would encourage listeners that if when the throne speech rolls around, we we don't see a lot of ambition, we don't we don't see things that we're really excited about. Um, obviously, don't despair too much because because we do know that uh, I don't know not not in the sense that we shouldn't be upset. We should be upset with our with our political representatives. But I think a lot of what we're going to see coming out of this period of, of trial and tribulation that we're all going through isn't even necessarily immediate measures being implemented by the government that we're all super happy with. But what I think we're going to see in the long run over the next one, five, ten years is is this is, is, is a shift towards the progressive, is a shift towards care. Because I think what what hopefully we're going to get out of this as a society um if if you can sort of get anything positive out of it is the realization and the sort of um deep-seated belief that the government really does exist to protect us and take care of us and that is what and that's what we should be demanding of our governments in the long term so it might mean that we're not getting a whole lot of progressive action right now out of the government but what it hopefully hopefully means is that when the next election rolls around we're getting a suite of more progressive candidates um, or we're getting people more involved in uh, grassroots community organizing and mutual aid relief that way. I, I think what what I'm hoping for is to see a larger cultural shift, if not an immediate policy shift, if that makes sense. For sure. And I, I think the, the flip side of that uh, is also, I think, somewhat true, which is that if in the throne speech we see a bunch of big fancy words and a bunch of, of we're going to you know, do everything that ever progressive has ever asked for, but there's no details. Don't let up. Don't don't take your foot off the gas, which I think is a bad metaphor given the fact that we're talking about climate change. We need a new metaphor for that. Uh, but but I think you can't trust that a flowery f- throne speech will necessarily res- culminate in a strong budget. And and so I think there's I think sort of in both sides of this I think you are right to emphasize that what we should probably be focusing on most is is the long game, you know, is ensuring that good progressive MPs are being nominated and then being elected, and and that the and that civil society and that those that non governmental places are finding new ways to connect with each other and new ways to support each other and act in solidarity with each other, which which I do think was something good that came out of this sort of just recovery movement already. And and so yeah. And so I, I, I again I think there's a there's we both we, we there's a lot there's a lot there. And I think the throne speech will give us a, a good sense of of where of where the liberal government plans to attack in one way or the other. But 
uh, I think the key here is to continue focusing, as you said, on the on the long game and making sure that we are still building power in the places where progressives need to build power to be able to really get the long term systemic and cultural changes that are that are required. Yeah, maybe not don't take your foot off the gas pedal, but like don't take your foot off the bike pedal kind of thing. There we go. That's <laughs> we'll take it. So the federal conservatives uh, have a new leader. Uh, Mr. Aaron O'Toole, who is indeed, as he has been officially sanctioned, the truest and bluest leader to have ever trued or blued, and his website has a statement on climate change, uh, which I will now uh, read for you. So, the climate change section of Mr. Aaron O'Toole's website, platform website, uh, reads... A carbon tax is not an environmental plan, it is a tax plan. We need a smarter approach, one which recognizes that. Climate change is a global problem that requires a global solution. The world will still be using oil and natural gas for a long time. The question is whether they will come from free countries like Canada, with strong environmental protections, or dictatorships with no environmental protections or respect for human rights. Uh, domestic energy production, including oil and gas, is as important uh, is an important part of making our country more self-reliant and more resilient in future, as we cannot afford to become reliant on energy from countries like Russia. Uh, putting one part of the country against another, uh, as Trudeau has done, is a cheap way to score political points and does nothing for uh, does not do anything for the planet. Canada is a world leader in zero-emissions technologies like nuclear and hydro and in innovations like making low-emission jet fuel out of carbon waste. And the environment is an area of shared jurisdiction, and the federal government should not be trampling on the provinces and territories. And he goes on to say, I will respect the jurisdiction of the provinces and territories by scrapping Trudeau's carbon tax. If provinces want to use market mechanisms, other forms of carbon pricing, or regulatory measures, that is up to them. And he writes, as leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, I will build a climate policy that meets the following criteria. It is founded on proven market-based principles for incenting uh, positive economic change, uh, focuses on making industry pay rather than taxing ordinary Canadians, by forging a national industrial regulatory and pricing regime across the country. Uh, it avoids focus on carbon only and is instead scoped to capture all greenhouse gases, many of which are more powerful than carbon dioxide, didn't you know? Uh, it simplifies the tax code uh, to create confidence in the resource sector and support its actions toward emission reduction. It will proactively invest in mitigation programs and critical infrastructure to protect communities threatened by climate change on an ongoing basis, such as floodplains along the Ottawa River, St. Lawrence, and Lake Ontario Basin. Uh, the plan would consider how to support regions of Canada most affected by the, the short-term impacts of climate, like floods, fires, and Lyme disease, as well as long-term economic impacts. Uh, and it shows the world that we are willing to do our part while also putting pressure on China, the U.S., and Russia to step up and do better. And it concludes that under Aaron O'Toole's leadership, Canada will contribute meaningfully to lowering global greenhouse gas emissions. And our priorities will include exporting modern and safe technology, safe nuclear technology, helping the world to stop burning coal by transitioning to nuclear gas, by, sorry, natural gas, tapping the ingenuity of our scientists and researchers to develop technology that will help the world, uh, working with industry on a plan to get to net zero emissions in the oil and gas industry, through the use of technology, of course, building climate resilience into our infrastructure, and promoting Canada as an ESG global energy thought leader. This is environmental social governance models. So this is Canada proving that uh, it is, uh, has an unparalleled commitment to ethical business practices, environmental regulation, indigenous engagement, rule of law, and transparency. So this is Canada flexing on the world and uh, he also has an action plan for Alberta and the West, which has a couple of environmental things 
where he says he wants to um, repeal Bill C-69, writing that Canada has some of the toughest environmental protections in the world, and it is already next to impossible to build major projects. He says the last thing we need to do is make it even harder to grow our economy. Uh, He would pass a National Strategic Pipelines Act. This would allow the government to declare a pipeline to be a nationally strategic and subject it to an expedited review process. The review would focus on consultation and ensuring the project meets high environmental standards, but it would no longer determine whether or not the project would proceed, as that decision would be made by the elected government. And he would scrap Trudeau's tanker ban, writing that it is unconscionable that American tankers sail through our waters and bring American oil and gas to the market while Canadians sit at home unemployed because we are blocking Canadian energy exports from the same waters. And he would implement a federal LNG export strategy, saying that we are blessed with abundant supplies of natural gas. And while much of the world is still reliant on coal, we should be exporting more uh, liquid natural gas to benefit us and the world. Wow. This is one of those things which is it's, it's obviously a significant amount to take in. And so I'll just hit three quick points. And then, you know, I, I, I firmly believe you won't see an election in the next year or so. So I'm going to knock on wood for that because I think that would be bad. But uh, the if, 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 we, if he starts running on this policy, then we can dive into it more. But just three quick points. The first is his highlighting of industry versus individual, which I, I think there's a, I, there was a very, very interesting article uh, that sort of compared Kenny's response to Trudeau's in regards to a price on carbon. And, and Kenny's response sort of took this similar tact to, to focus on high carbon industry rather than individuals. And in this, in this article response, Andrew Leach wrote it, uh, basically highlighted the fact that if you focus on heavy industry while allowing for individual carbon not to be taxed, what you're actually doing is hurting Alberta more and the West more. Because what you're allowing is all of the cars that are being driven in Ontario to not count towards any sort of carbon, but but carbon being re- being released in Alberta and Saskatchewan due to heavy industry gets taxed. And so it's actually what's interesting about that the conservative movement seems to be realizing that it's they're trying to run this populist measure, but what they're actually pitching is actually worse for the exact places where their strongholds are despite you know because of how they're actually designed uh the second which i won't get into briefly but again long but this net zero uh in the oil and gas industry if you want to go back a couple episodes and listen to our extended rant about why net zero doesn't make sense for oil and gas go ahead and please do it's only a couple episodes ago basically you cannot be sucking oil out of the ground as an oil and gas company and pretend you're going to be net zero unless you have significant, significant, significantly improved carbon capture and storage, which just doesn't currently exist uh, for us in any real way. And lastly, this Pipelines Act is 100% would be like, like, I'm not even sure if it's legal. Uh, let it, to basically say that the elected government would get to decide whether or not a a pipeline goes through, rather than the indigenous nations that you are that you are going through, uh, or the any of the environmental assessments or anything like that. You're, you're basically saying that all of these reviews and all these assessments are, are are meaningless, and that ultimately it is we get to decide as the government, which is. I know it clearly a mistake and clearly tramples on indigenous rights, which is makes it incredibly hypocritical to include the fact that Canada's quote a leader in this consultation process and then have a bullet point about how you would ignore all of that. But anyways, this is there's more there, but I'll throw to you, Lauren. Yeah, I guess right off the bat, I think I just want to uh, unfortunately admit that I think Aaron O'Toole's kind of been playing his cards right uh, here so far. Um, we know that the Conservatives lost the last election uh, in large part because they couldn't secure seats in the Toronto area and in the 905 region. Um, and based on polling that we saw come out during the election and, and polling that we've seen again the last couple months, we, we know that's largely because uh, voters in that region uh, want ambitious climate policy. They're not 
not going to get those votes unless they come out with something at least resembling a somewhat serious climate plan. Um, what sort of concerns me now, I guess, is that now that you do have a conservative leader even talking about climate change, I think my concern is, um, does the average voter even know what real climate action should be? Um, and that's not me questioning the intelligence of the average voter. It's it's just sort of me worried that um, if if we as a as an electorate hear the right words, if we hear things like polluter pays and bridge fuel and acknowledge an acknowledgement for the from the conservative party that we do need some action on climate change, is that all it's going to take? to win people over and to make people think that this is a responsible party. Um, and that's where, that's where my concern lies around this. Um, in addition to like all of the actual terrible policy suggestions that, that O'Toole is putting forward, what, what we do know from this plan is that yes, he's saying we need a climate plan. Yes. Climate action is something that he says he wants, but, but th this isn't it. <laughs> this isn't what actual climate um, ambition looks like. But um, so I think uh, what I would really, really want to and drive home to listeners is that at least as it stands, as the Conservative Party of 2020 and the Conservative Party, at least as I have always known it, albeit I'm still somewhat, somewhat young, um, please know that a vote for the Conservatives will likely never be a vote for climate. Um, I can say that because climate action is, is about social justice. It's about, uh, as, a, as a historically high polluting nation, it's about doing our fair share. And, um, and, and not, not, I'm not saying that we can spend our way out of the problem, but, but climate action as of right now is about spending. Um, we need to, for instance, spend something like $4 billion annually in international climate finance if we're going to be doing our job to, to, to support climate action overseas based on our, our historical contribution to greenhouse gas emissions. Um, that $4 billion, for instance, is, is to support adaptation and mitigation measures, not to mention over and above that $4 billion to cover loss and damage. Um, and, and I guess the point I'm trying to make is that this kind of spending won't be supported by a fiscal conservative nor by a social conservative because <laughs> even if it's somebody who's socially conservative but not fiscally conservative, they in all likelihood won't view it as, as their problem or burden. Um, I, I, guess, I guess what I would say is also that, that if you are a listener and you're mad at me right now because you do view, view yourself as, as somebody who is ideologically conservative or ideologically right wing um, and you think I'm really wrong, please let me know. I'd be happy to be proven wrong. But I think, yeah, I, I think I would just try to drive home that because climate action doesn't just mean reducing greenhouse gases numerically, um, a, a vote for a conservative isn't a vote for real climate ambition. Um, at least not in the way we want to see it. Uh, at best slash worse, worst rather. I, I think it's it's in some ways a vote for ecofascism because it's it's protectionist, it's nationalist, and and their version of climate action looks like protecting only those who can afford it and sacrificing the rest. Um, and and I think we also know that because on, uh, on on the note you were making, Stefan, where you were saying that like how can a federal government possibly have the right to to pass a pipeline? when I was sort of doing some quick researching of Aaron O'Toole, uh, a really significant um, and important quote came up where he said, um, he quote unquote is not a fan of UNDRIP. Um, and, and he would quote unquote, break the log jam holding back land claim settlements and land title issues. So what that tells me is that even if he were to somehow uh, do a, do a 180 and decide that he wanted to fully support renewable energy and totally abandon the fossil fuel industry, he's still not going to do so in a way that actually respects indigenous land rights. And as a result, isn't going to do so in a way that in any way meaningly disrupts the like capitalist stranglehold we have over our relationship to land and our relationship to, to how we treat the, uh, the quote unquote natural resources of, of the country that we occupy. All right. So moving on to Ontario. A uh, friend of the show, Emma McIntosh, is reporting for the National Observer that the Ontario government's COVID recovery bill 197 is going to face another legal challenge, arguing that the passing of the bill was illegal. Environmental groups had already filed a lawsuit against uh, arguing the same because the government did not consult the public on the bill's environmental changes, even though our environmental uh, bill of rights says that they have to. Now, 133 First Nations are suing the Doug Ford government, too, 
arguing that they also did not consult First Nations and therefore violated treaty rights. The bill rewrites environmental assessments to allow many projects to avoid full environmental review. Yeah, so we, we actually covered this pretty extensively with, with Emma when she was on the show two weeks ago before this had happened. And, and Emma had referenced that, that, that she'd heard some rumblings about likely that there would be a further legal challenge. And, and this is obviously what she was referencing, referencing there. And this is important because, the, as mentioned on the show two weeks ago, the Environmental Bill of Rights, even if it's determined it, it was against, it was behind that, it doesn't actually have a lot of teeth to be able to, to undo what th- this, this law. Um, the, the, the Environmental Bill of Rights doesn't really have a mechanism to, to push back against the government, even if something's determined to be, to be in response to it. And so the fact that it's being challenged now uh, by, by, by these First Nations that is quite important because, because they do. They have, they have much more, they have much stronger uh, law case against it, that, that if they win, they actually could, could maybe reverse some of these, some of these issues. Um. Yeah, I, I think uh, something about this that freaks me out is um, it's it's so good to see this this challenge being taken to court, and I and I would love to support this this challenge in, in any way I can. What I'm nervous about is the fact that um, when I was researching for this story, um, a lot of the really great coverage I saw was from was from uh, outlets like the National Observer and like the Narwhal, and I wasn't necessarily seeing a lot from mainstream media. And why that freaks me out is because currently Ford is sitting at something like a 66% approval. Um, and he's something like, when you look at a list of all of the premiers across the country, he's he ranks something like third, um, which tells me that uh, at least as of a couple of weeks ago, maybe it'll change as, as sort of the back fiasco with COVID, but people aren't all that upset with Ford. And I think part of that is due to the fact that all of this sort of dangerous regulatory rollback happens um, largely behind the scenes, isn't talked about publicly by the government, of course, and isn't necessarily picked up by mainstream media. So I'm just so nervous that he's he's inflicting all of this damage and that the majority of people can't hear about it. And if they can't hear about it, then they can't be angry about it. Um, and then they won't vote based on it. Um, so that that's sort of what continues to freak me out about Doug Ford is that he started to do these really nasty, insidious changes, um, and and the average person just doesn't know about them, unfortunately. Um, and it's 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 regulations like this, like these like these environmental regulations that he's rolling back, um, that that protect us from from really like everyday um, evils of the industry of of air and water pollution, um, of 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 things that, that we totally take for granted, things like dumping, um, that we, we don't think about being regulated until you real, until that regulation is taken away, if that makes sense. There were a couple pieces of this legislation that people sort of referred back to Walkerton in regards to some of the regulations that when they go awry, you know, people die. And, and, and yeah, I think you're, you're nailing the head there with, with this concern about the fact that Ford has managed to ride Basically, doing nothing uh, about COVID. You know, like the idea that we, I, I had a conversation about this a little bit a couple of weeks ago with uh, when talking about Highway 413. But the fact that his response to COVID has been to allow the federal government to basically do give Ontario all of the support. You know, there's been almost no real support coming from the from the conservative government in Ontario for Ontario specific. It's been almost entirely federal support that's come through. And and then, which then allows him to sort of, you know, complain that they're not doing enough while he allows, you know, large class sizes to continue and all these other things. And so, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think something, you know, he was deeply, deeply unpopular in his first year and has been largely saved by by COVID in in a in a sick turn of events. And we'll see what happens in the next, you know, couple of years. But but I think you're right. We, you have to start seeing some responses in, in more mainstream sources to these types of things because it's legitimately dangerous. Yeah, I mean, just to add really quickly, I think I think I'm starting to realize that Ford has benefited every step of the way by the existence of Trump in the South because he rode Trump's coattails to an election win. Um, and then when Trump has continued to mess up over and over again and condemn hundreds of thousands of, of American citizens to death uh, 
Ford isn't Ford isn't responsible for for quite the same level of catastrophe here. So in comparison, um, he looks he looks like a bit of a golden boy because he 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 didn't end up being uh, quite the same buffoon that that <laughs> Trump that Trump has has proven himself to be. Um, but he, like I said, he he benefited from sort of the 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 craziness and the circus that that Trump initially presented, and and he he rode that to a win a few years ago. So he's kind of got the best of both worlds, unfortunately. It's a terrible year unless you're Doug Ford. My name is Dan Gold, an old bachelor I am. I'm keeping old batch on an elegant plan. You'll find me out here on Alberta's bush plain, a starving to death on a government claim. And uh, we are now going to talk about environmental news. I'm assuming right. that's why this program exists. It is. It is. Okay. So, uh, elephants. 350 elephants mysteriously died in Botswana in May and June, and they are now starting to die in Zimbabwe as well. At least one researcher is praying for an extremely fresh carcass to help determine why the elephants are dying. It is possible that they're dying from toxic algae, which is blooming increasingly in lakes and ponds around the world as a result of global warming and industrial farming. Yeah, so we've been talking and covering about toxic algae blooms. You know, there's usually one or two stories through every year about a, the larger ones that sort of come in. Usually there's the stories maybe of a dog or two dying uh, or something else that comes in contact with it. But but this is significant. Like, you know, elephants are an endangered species and 350 dying, not even to poachers, but to other causes is, is deeply alarming for the species. And for me, the distinctly sad part is is that elephants mourn their dead. You know, elephants will come back to the grave sites uh, of their of, of ones they've lost. And so, you know, I, maybe I'm just being fond of charismatic megafauna, but but there's something deeply sad about the loss of an elephant. And uh, moving on to Africa's Green Wall, that continent-spanning Green Wall. Great Green Wall of trees being planted across northern Africa to stem the southward advance of the Sahara is disastrously behind schedule. It has created 350,000 jobs since it started over a decade ago, but it's only 4% complete when it should be over halfway done. It's possible that grasslands would be better than trees in some areas, and it seems like the original tent has been intent has been abandoned. But the experience has taught people a lot and could be built upon in the future. Yeah. So if you're thinking to yourself that you've heard of this before, it's because this has been ongoing since 2007. And this latest report is you know, legitimately you know, too bad. As we've spent some previous episodes maligning tree planting as a response to climate change, I feel it's important to note that this was to be different. You know, it was supposed these trees were themselves were meant to be to serve as ecosystem an, e- an ecosystem purpose and protect biodiversity. Uh, you know, and stem desertification, as w- rather than just sort of simply being there to restore carbon. But and the lesson here, there may be two lessons here. I think actually we can pull from this. The first is that ultimately ideas without a plan to monitor them and support them are going to run into trouble. You know, this wall is an example of the dangers of presuming that emission reductions. Uh, will be there before they're actually actualized. You could you could very easily see in 2007 uh, some sort of market-based approach of selling carbon offsets, p- pushing this wall as a way to sort of do that, only to then, you know, and then these companies, of course, would buy them, and then to have 4% produced in 13 years. Those companies have already used, spent, exerted that carbon out in 2007. And so, you have to, this has to be part of the understanding of the difficulty of, unless you have really solid monitoring systems, you you cannot count carbon before it is sequestered, and and secondly, there might be other takeaway might be here is that we shouldn't be focusing so much on what is a good story. You know, the Great Green Wall has a great ring to it in a, in a great story, but rather what is actually valuable, which in the words of Chris Rage of the World Resources Institute, is what this project has now begun to focus on, uh, which is quote 
It is now much more about creating great green and productive landscapes, even though they don't express in these terms. There's a ton of good experiences across the Sahel upon which is which it is possible to build, and there are more smaller and bigger successes than often assumed, which can be scaled. So, as, as Dave sort of mentioned in the to- off the top, there is some good news here and some good takeaways. Um, so, a uh, second fire that started on an oil tanker off the coast of Sri Lanka has been put out, and the ship is now being towed out to sea after leaving behind a kilometer-long slick. Uh, the oil tanker that split in two and capsized near Mauritius has now claimed the lives of three people who were cleaning it up after it spilled over a thousand tons of oil into the unspeakable glory of the surrounding environment. And uh, armadas of oil tankers, uh, oil tankers on oil tankers on oil tankers, are currently sitting idle all around the world because oil producers have continued to overproduce through first the oil price crash and then the COVID pandemic. So all this oil is sitting in ships everywhere with nowhere to go. Energy reporter Antonio Yuhaz recently argued in an interview with Amy Goodman that global markets would already be moving on from oil if only governments would stop subsidizing it. The, you know, how can you not see the fact that we can't even afford to put the oil still sitting on land and so are leaving it in tankers throughout the waters to not imply that this is a dying resource? You know, we have to get off of it. And and it's sitting in tankers is a deep and dangerous thing to allow it to do. You know, we have to have a better response than this in multiple ways. And so, you know, if if 2020 is not the beginning of the conversation of the end of oil, then we are in a deep, deep trouble. So a large portion of Senegal is underwater because of flash flooding that dropped three months of rain in seven hours in parts of the country. Yeah. So uh, the next set of stories, I think, would sort of paint a picture of the world and the stories that we're missing because of COVID. You know, these are the stories of things that would might have been, you know, the number one news story in other years and and we would have allowed us to sort of you know funnel some money towards to help these populations in these different places but because because of covid and because of the way our new system works you know we're we're able to allow 3 months of rain to be dropped in 7 hours and it doesn't even scratch the surface of of mainstream news uh, at all the ancient nubian pyramids of sudan are under threat from the waters of the nile that have overflowed and caused flooding. The Nile always floods to help farmers, but this year it has flooded to points never reached before, caused partially by increased rainfall from global warming. Again, you know, this is uh, yet a second set of obscene rain causing tragedies. You know, these are, this is the kind of thing that has been warned about again and again and again by climate scientists for the last you know, 50, 60 years, and yet we're, we're not seeing any sort of response whatsoever. And, and this is happening in places like that, that don't have the infrastructure to build back up. You know, Sudan, we talked about briefly, I believe, on, in its response to COVID and how it had to sort of have, find its own response to that. And so to be dealing with the multiple catastrophes of a pandemic and then of this kind of flooding is, is over, would be overwhelming for everyone, as we see later. It's overwhelming for California, which is one of the richest places in the world. And so it, it, we have to do something now or else this is going to keep getting worse. Tropical Storm Rene, which formed this week over the Atlantic, is the earliest R-named storm in history and is keeping 2020 in the running for the worst Atlantic hurricane season in history. It is coming just days after the strongest hurricane to hit Louisiana since 1856. That is, of course, Hurricane Laura, which intensely intensified in just 24 hours before making landfall. There has also been flooding in China from record-setting rains which threatened the Three Gorges Dam. Rainstorms flooded dams in California and Michigan. A major tropical storm hit Ireland earlier than usual. There is record drought across the U.S. southwest. 
Heat records are being broken across the U.S. and northern Australia is baking in a record-breaking winter heat wave. This phenomenon of too much water falling on some places and not enough in others is, of course, typical of climate change. Like, what's amazing is this, you include here that California sees record rainfall, and yet shortly we're going to talk about the absolute fire season that they're having. And, you know, you, you reference the, the quote, you know, too much rain and all, uh, too much water in all the wrong places. And that's exactly what's to be expected uh, through all of this. And what's amazing is that some of these things are happening even faster than we expected, uh, you know, especially when we refer to the next story about losing ice. A new satellite analysis of the North and South Poles is showing that 28 trillion tons of ice has vanished since 1994, causing further heating, higher oceans, and ecosystem disruption. Another study is showing that a uh, 350,000 square miles of floating ice in Antarctica is getting close to collapse. Um, for those of you who've been following on the show for a long time, understand that a big thing about ice loss specifically is that ice serves actually as a as a way to cool the planet. The the whiteness of the ice on the on the polar caps actually reflects a lot of light and and allows for it to 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 bounce back off and not get trapped in our atmosphere. And so losing ice is not only bad because it raises actual water temperatures, it also actually allows for further warming and faster warming because of the fact that you lose that ground cover of, of ice and of, 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 of literally of the color of, of, of white that reflects more heat than anything else. And the terrible wildfires in California and Colorado will be getting worse and worse as this great century continues to unfold, as global warming will likely triple the number of big fires in the U.S. by 2050 or so. Inside Climate News mentions that there has already been a five-fold increase in the number of Californian fires between 1972 and 2018. They also mention how the smoke from the current fires is wafting across the country, worsening heart and lung disease, hurting immune systems, and increasing vulnerability to COVID-19. Dana Frank mentions in The Guardian how the fires in California are so quickly merging and spreading that the only names they're being given are things like CZU Lightning Complex, although one of the recent fires has been traced to the pyrotechnics at a gender reveal party. It's thought to be one of those devices that explode in pink or blue smoke to inform your guests of whether your child will be scoring touchdowns or wearing tutus, as if we were stuck gender-wise in the 1800s. According to Guardian's Australia's Foreign Desk World News Live blogger Helen Sullivan, a similar gender reveal device took the life of a woman in Iowa last October, and a failed gender reveal stunt ended in a plane crash last year in Texas. Uh, but back to the fires, on the 4th of September, the Creek Fire created its own pyrocumulonimbus cloud also known as a cumulonimbus flammagenitus. And NASA quotes atmospheric scientist Dr. Colin Sefter as saying, quote, The pyrocumulonimbus cloud created aerosol index values, indicating that this is one of the largest, if not the largest, pyrocumulonimbus cloud events seen in the United States. And uh, two of the fires now burning are the second and third largest in the state's history, Veteran firefighters have never seen anything like it. Hundreds of Californians are having to live together in close quarters in auditoriums and high schools to avoid the fires and probably transmit the coronavirus. Uh, power has been cut off to 172,000 people over fears of power lines sparking more blazes. Los Angeles County reached a record temperature of 49 degrees Celsius on the 6th of September. The fires uh, have already burned a record 2 million acres, and the most intense part of the fire season has yet to begin. Yeah, if you have seen some of the photos coming out of California these days, they, you know, they are the example of when someone says a picture is worth a thousand words. You know, the, the sky becomes this bright, orangey red 
and there's a photo of a, of a UPS truck that I saw that it's in the middle of the day and yet its lights are on because it has to. You know, it is it is the one of the starkest set of images. I think partially that is why fire maybe actually influences people's opinions about climate change more than any other type of weather because it's so viscerally connected to the concept of heat even though, you know, as as Emily Aiken reported in her newsletter Heated, most of the major newspapers that were reporting on on these fires didn't really make the connection to climate change whatsoever. But it is unbelievable the level of which these fires are taking over. And, and, it, and this is one of the, again, as I mentioned earlier, this is one of the richest places in the world, and it can't get these things under, under control. We're not going to see this getting better in, these pla- uh, in other places that don't have the same resources. And if California can't find a way to properly equip itself to, to manage these things, you know, what we're going to see, which I think I've covered you know, previously, is you're going to start seeing the rich find ways to move away and move further away from these places, and the poor will be left in places that won't be able to get insurance and, and will get burned down every once in a while, which will create a further loop of, of a reduction of wealth. Because the rich will be able to live in places where they can protect their wealth and their wealth can grow, and the poor will constantly see their wealth, which is largely these days held in your your living situation, be destroyed by whether it's a fire in California or flooding in Louisiana. You know, the more catastrophic the more catastrophes that are caused by these types of weather, and the more pl- ways that we are seeing we we are seeing that. You know, insurance companies are drawing back from places like floodplains in Houston. You know, we're seeing this all over all over the United States, and we'll see it in other places too. That we have to find a way to put an end to this, or it will only further exacerbate the already perhaps the you know one of the biggest problems we have, which is wealth inequality. It's only going to keep getting worse. The most recent data from the EU is showing that wildfires in the Arctic have already emitted 35% more CO2 this year than they did for the entirety of 2019. Uh, Scientists will soon be warning the UN that deforestation will unleash more pandemics in the coming years. Uh, An unprecedented legal action in Europe is underway as six Portuguese youths have filed a lawsuit against 33 countries in the European Court of Human Rights, which could have global implications if it succeeds. It began after 120 people were killed by wildfires in 2017 in Lera, Portugal. Lisbon then went through a record heat wave in 2018, reaching 44 degrees Celsius, and this July was the hottest in Portugal for 90 years. The lawsuit is going after countries' direct emissions as well as the emissions they cause beyond their borders. Hoboken, New Jersey, meanwhile, has filed a lawsuit of its own against ExxonMobil and other oil majors for misinforming people about their products as the city is particularly vulnerable to sea level rise. And finally, Extinction Rebellion is back with disruptive obedience, uh, dis- disruptive disobedience happening across the UK. In one instance, blocking the roads in front of printing presses to disrupt the distribution of newspapers owned by Rupert Murdoch. XR activists are now occupying Parliament Square in London to get politicians to vote in favor of the Climate and Ecological Emergency Bill, or CEE, which would include a citizens assembly for determining their path forward. Uh, toward limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Mark Montegriffo, in a piece for Jacobin in which he argues that XR and the larger society will fail if it does not embrace socialism, points out that the Citizens' Assembly in France, convened after the Yellow Vest protests, has only seen three of its 149 recommendations ultimately accepted by President Macron. The Citizens' Assembly in the UK, of course, could, however, include provisions you know, requiring the government to follow more of their suggestions. I think if I had to sort of wrap up this show, I would, I would sort of go back to the, the beginning, which is 
that if this year is showing us anything, you know, if if the experience of living through uh, this pandemic combined with what has been an absolutely nightmarish weather uh, response, you know, I don't have, I, maybe I don't have, I don't think I would have to remind our audience is that this is the year that saw the unbelievably unprecedented wildfires in Australia that killed 1 billion animals. That was still 2020. You know, what I think we're seeing in this year is, especially weather-wise, is the, you know, we've always talked about we're always living through climate change, but if this is what is to come, and it is, the 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 fact you have to take away from it is that small measures, the measures that we're seeing from our current government here in Canada are not enough. The measures that we're seeing that are even, the weaker measures we're seeing being pushed by the new leader of the Conservative Party are not enough. You know, in the face of the utter destruction that is that is reaping across the world right now, uh, the only answer seems to be transformative change, uh, which is, I think, why the push for the just recovery and why the push for a stronger response is so necessary. And so if, if you are sort of feeling right now at the end of the show somewhat... I was going to say sad, but sad doesn't seem, the right, doesn't seem strong enough depressed, maybe, forlorn, take up one sponsor. Like, find a thing to push for. Find an organization to support. Find, you know, go meet with your with your, with your your MP. Talk to your family if they don't fully understand the need for a, a, for a response. Because everything is, we're, we're going to need everyone. The, the job is so big, we're going to need it for everyone. And so if you can't help, please do, because we need all your help in all of the ways if we're going to get a just recovery and ultimately take on what is, you know, a extinction level event.